0: Well, good morning. Good morning. And welcome to Bridgewater. We're glad you're here. My name is Matt, and the joy and honor of being the campus pastor here. Uh, if you missed last week, like I did because I was sick, um, we are jumping into a series called The Tales of Three Kings. Just want to give a shout out to Brett and the team for doing a great job. Trust me, I would have rather have been here than where I was. Uh, but glad to be back with you as we're in this series talking, uh, really uh, looking at the lives of three individual men. Uh, who led in the ancient nation of Israel, which was God's uh, light to the nations of the world around, that they would look in at how Israel was governed and led, uh, and how they acted and interacted, and they would see a glimpse of who the creator was because of how well they lived in love, That was really the goal for Israel to, to represent God. And these men were appointed to lead the, that very nation uh, in the world. Now, this was not God's original design. God's original design was that he would be king. But they said, we want to look like the other nations. Give us a king and against uh, God's better judgment. He said, this isn't best for you, but this is what you want. Here you go. What you see for the rest of the, the story of ancient Israel up until Jesus comes is that men come and men go, kings come and kings go. And there's something true that is about or there's something true about many of them uh, is that they lacked what it was necessary to lead God's people well. And so what we're looking at this series um, is, is really kind of when you consider your life, we are not that different. Um, then the, the role given to Israel is not that different than the role given to us. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, the, the goal on your life is that when people look in on you, the way you govern the your life, the way you live your life, the way you treat people, they would see a reflection of who God is. That is, we are called to be ambassadors of Christ, meaning people see us, uh, they think of Jesus, right? Now that's a tall, that's a tall task uh, to fulfill, but that's what we are called to as Christ followers. And in order for that to be true, there has to be some things true of who we are on the inside. Because if I were to say this morning to, to you words like potential, capacity, ceiling, possibilities, right? As you hear these words, you hear them in the marketplace. Um, if you've ever done a performance review at work, right? You, you've they've asked you kind of what are your capabilities. You're measured on your capabilities. How, how well do you do in your craft and your skill? And they ask questions about ceiling, right? As you're considering somebody to hire, you go, okay, here's where they are. Where could they go? What what is their ceiling or their capacity? Well, the same is true in the kingdom of God, but the qualifiers are different. See, God has given each one of us capability. He's given us potential. He's given us a ceiling. But what determines whether we get there or not is not the external metrics that the world uses. It's one word. And it's the word this whole series is based off of, really, and it's this. It's your character. Your character is the mental and moral qualities distinctive to an individual. Because when you looked at King Saul last week, what was true externally is that he had it. You know that it factor? When you look at somebody and you're like, I'll follow them, right? Like externally, he was head and shoulders above everybody else. They wanted to follow a guy like him. You look at David as we're going to look at next week. David was a phenomenal warrior. Men would follow him anywhere. He had won their allegiance. He had it. Now we're going to look at Absalom, uh, David's son, who also had it. He said he was the most handsome man in all of Israel. He won People's Magazines, Sexiest Man Alive in Ancient Israel, right? Like that was his accolade. But somewhere in all of them, despite everything externally they had going for them, to be great, they lacked some key internal qualities. Character is the matter of who you are when nobody's around. What is true of you when the spotlight isn't on? What is the inner thoughts, the inner decisions, the inner motivations of your heart? And how can those things ultimately either propel us to the greatness God has for us or become a ceiling much, much lower than God ever intended for us to have. As you saw last week, here was three things about Saul's character uh, that were true of him. Partial obedience was huge for him. He had convinced himself that he was above obeying God, um, that he could kind of leverage God, he could do 90%, and that was good enough, that it was fine for him, that was true of his character, that he didn't think it was necessary to obey. He was the exception. Well, we saw that wasn't true, and ultimately it ended up losing him the kingdom. When he gets confronted about that decision, what does he do? Again, doesn't take responsibility. He doesn't have the character of a leader, and he begins to blame his men. It's my men's fault. Why? Well, well, here's the reason. He lived his life in fear of man. From the very beginning, he was trying to hide from the responsibility God was trying to give him. When a responsibility came with hard knocks, which is what comes with responsibility and leadership, is difficult decisions and hard knocks, and being the one that takes the blame, he shifted it. Why? Because in the end, he wasn't leading his men. The opinions of people were leading him. Your challenge last week to consider when you make decisions, when I make decisions, do I make them thinking, what are people going to think about me? Or do I make them thinking, what is God going to think about me? That question is what will determine a great deal of your capacity to do great things for the kingdom of God. Because you will be required as a follower of Jesus to do things that are unpopular to the people around you. The question is, who ultimately do you Worry most about standing in judgment before. The opinions of men around you or standing before God Almighty and what He says and thinks about you. So that was last week. There's a whole other piece of his character, of Saul's character that we're going to look at today. It's, it's a matter of jealousy. It, it erodes everything about his life. These three things were bad, but these were just the beginning of what ultimately ended up ruining Saul. Because when Saul rejected God with his disobedience, he said, God, I don't want your ways. I want to do it my way. God said the most terrifying thing he could say to any of us, which is, okay, have what you want. You really want sin that much? Here you go. You really want life free of me? Here you go. And he gives Saul what he wants, which is terrifying to consider that God would answer that prayer because it ultimately ends up ruining Saul. So he still remains king at this point. His his reign is starting to come undone, but before his reign comes undone, Saul himself becomes undone. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to me to first Samuel chapter sixteen. Uh first Samuel chapter sixteen. If you don't have a Bible, Uh, We would love to put one in your hands uh, for free. And in fact, I forgot my Bible. I don't know what that says about me as a pastor, that I forgot my Bible on church. Uh, So I'm reading out of the free one that we would have given you. So if there's not a free one there, it's because I committed theft in church. All right. Uh, (laughs) 1 Samuel chapter 16. uh, What you see in the first half of this chapter is, uh, we're going to talk about this next week. But in the first half of this chapter, what you see is that Samuel the prophet comes and he anoints uh, David as the next king. He is the, the shepherd boy that is forgotten out in the field, and Samuel says, no, 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 that's the one, he's the one who's going to be the next king. But nobody knows that this has taken place besides Samuel and David's family. Nobody in the kingdom has been told he's the next king. Saul is still king at this point. So as you jump into uh, chapter 16, verse 14, I want you to see how God, uh, in his infinite wisdom, brings David into the picture. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendant said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the liar. He will play when the evil spirit uh, from God comes on you, and you will feel better. So can we just pause right there real quick? I didn't say this first service. I meant to. What terrible advice. Here's the godly people around him saying, Saul, you failed. You screwed up. Uh, you've sinned against God. Their advice is not... Saul, would you repent and reconcile and humble yourself before the Lord and see what he might do? Their advice was medicate. Their advice was just pacify the fact that you rebelled against God. Don't, Don't repent. That would be crazy talk. Terrible, terrible advice. Anyway, let's keep reading. Verse 17. So Saul said to his attendants, find me someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre in play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. As you see, uh, Saul here really just become undone. He is uh, given this spirit to torment him. And there's a whole huge conversation on this that we don't have time uh, to tackle this morning. But here's the gist of what I would say about this spirit that's tormenting him. When we choose to reject what is known as common grace, which is the grace of God given to all people for all men at all times, those who believe him and those who don't believe him, even if you're here and you're not a believer, God has a mercy on your life uh, that you would know his goodness and his kindness even if you're not willing to acknowledge it. That is true, all right? But there came this point where Saul had rejected God and God said, okay, I'm removing that mercy and grace. You are given now the full weight of your sin and it tormented Saul. The grace and mercy and kindness of God was removed and he was left with what anyone who rejects God would be left with, which is their own sin, and nobody wants that. Saul now felt this torment, and God, in his infinite wisdom, chose David to come play the harp and the lyre. And I just kind of picture him wearing a sombrero, sitting in the corner, singing songs on his four-string guitar, whatever it is, right? Like Luke Thomas over there playing songs in the corner, and every time he played, it calmed him down. God had used and positioned David near Saul, I think for a lot of reasons, we'll talk about it next week, but he he positioned him to be somebody who would bring relief for Saul. It's incredibly important how God uh, put him there. But what happens uh, is he eventually uh, leaves the service, he goes back, and he is in the, the field back to tending sheep with his father. His brothers are at war with the Philistines, like Brett talked about last week, and there's this man named, Anybody know it, the story? Goliath, all right. Everybody knows the story of Goliath. This is what happens next. There's this man named Goliath out in the field. He's taunting Israel. He's taunting um, their God. He's taunting God that they're weak, they're incapable, all these things. Well, David comes to bring supplies to Saul and his brothers in the army. And when he gets there, he realizes that nobody is doing anything about this giant that is mocking God. They're all sitting passively. Saul's hiding in his tent. The men are cowering. And David starts walking around going, what in the world is wrong with you? Are you really going to let somebody talk about our God that way? You're really going to let this man defame the God of the universe? And he just gets indignant. Well, he goes to Saul and says, let me at him, right? Let me at him. Well, he's just a little shepherd boy. And Saul just starts laughing at him. And he's like, no, for real, God is going to deliver me. And he says, okay, fine, put my armor on. So he tries to put Saul's armor on. This really interesting thing happens is it doesn't work. David can't fit in it. He just, he takes it off kind of saying, I, this might have worked for you, Saul, but this is not how I'm going to win. And so he leaves the armor behind, and he grabs a sling and a couple stones, and he runs out, and you know how the story goes. Down goes Goliath. What I want to highlight to you is what happens as David is running towards Goliath, the conversation that Saul has in his tent. Jump over to verse 55 here. Chapter 17, verse 55. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine... He sent to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. Jump into chapter 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well." Does anybody find it interesting that the king, who's supposed to be representing God, is hiding in his tent while God is getting mocked, and this young boy comes up to him, a teenager comes up to him and says, I'll go fight, and he says yes. Surely he knew this was a suicide mission, surely he knew he was going to die, and you get a picture into how terrible Saul really was. Sure, 16-year-old boy, if you want to go commit suicide... I'll stand here and watch. I don't even know your name. Go ahead and die. That was Saul's job, and he sent a young boy to do it. Now, God worked our great deliverance. He defeats the Philistine, and he comes back, and he just begins to fly through the ranks because there's something special about this man. And everybody started to notice how incredible David was because the favor of God was on him. The problem was that people started to like him a little too much. Next verse. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with timbers and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry at this refrain. uh, This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. Every time I hear that, I just like change the voice that I read that in. They have credited David with 10,000. Like, that's just that's how I read the Bible. I'm sorry. <laughs> I Me mean, with only thousands. Then he says something really interesting. What more can he get but the kingdom? Isn't it unique that a song from David is what ultimately calmed his spirits? But a song about David is ultimately what puts him over the edge. This song reveals the, the deep insecurity. And jealousy that took root in Saul's heart. Because he thought, man, I should be the one getting praise. No, you shouldn't. You were the one hiding in the tent. <laughs> There's this, just emotive jealousy about him. And here's what's really interesting. This last phrase, what more, no, let's, let's go back. What more can he get but the kingdom? Here's what Saul was failing to see in this moment. When the king's army wins, the, king's, the king wins. When the king's men come back alive, the king wins. When the king's army defeats a great nation, the king wins. But he wasn't getting the praise and affection that he thought was his. And so he begins to walk in this position of saying, I deserve something that I'm not getting. I deserve the praise of these people, not David. I deserve, what more can he take from me? He's taken pretty much else, everything else. He might as well have the kingdom. But here's what he's not seeing. He's still the king. He still has power. He still has position. He still has the influence. But his jealousy caused him to not see it. As we consider our own lives, here's what I want you to know about jealousy. Jealousy, if you let it, will blind you to what you already have. He had everything, except the Spirit of God, because that had departed him. But he had everything that he was mad David was also getting. And he was unwilling or incapable, I'm not sure which one, (laughs) to see that he had everything that he was wanting. It blinded him to the, the, the reality of what was already in his hands. As you consider your own life this morning, you, maybe you don't think jealousy right off the bat is something that you struggle with, but if you're honest in here this morning, it, it might be. It might be something that sneaks up in your heart. And I would say there's four areas that we find ourselves wrestling with, with jealousy more often, and I put them all in P's so you could remember it. Uh, here's the first one, that you would be jealous of someone's position. That you look in their life, be it at work, be it in their family, their position in life is something that you envy. You you want what they have. You you look in and you go, I think I deserve that. Perhaps maybe even a little bit more than you. Right? Their their position. The next would be praise. As you look at somebody who just seems to always be in the favor of other people, they're just really, uh, we would probably use the Christian word, they're just so blessed, right? Like um, they're just that coworker at work that just always seems to have it going for them. They're just always winning and you're over there in your corner just like wondering why you're not winning, and they are, or privilege. There's some people who just seem to have the ability to do things and get to do things and Uh, That that you really think you should get those, or prosperity, which would basically just be the financial position of somebody else. As you consider those four things, uh, what creeps into our hearts, if we're going to let jealousy sit there, is really this just phrase that says, I'm owed that. As I look into their life, I think I'm owed that, and I might even be owed that a little bit more than they're owed that. That's exactly what Saul is saying. But what Saul can't see is that he already has those things. He already has great things in his life. But all he thinks is that he's owed something else. And the problem with jealousy is when you look at somebody who has something that you think you want, there begins to erode relationship. Listen to how Andy Stanley, a pastor and author, says this. So when we think about jealousy or envy, we immediately think about the things we lack. Looks, skills, opportunities, health, height, inheritance, etc. We go on and on. We assume our problem is with the person who possesses what we lack. Can I tell you this is the root of so much relational strife? As you navigate into your families, you navigate into your work environments. When you see that somebody has a, a position, power, praise, or prosperity that you think belongs to you, and you want it and they have it, it is really hard to keep your heart pure towards them. It is really hard to walk in graciousness and kindness towards them because there's this burr that I think I deserve that. But here's what I think is most interesting about what Andy's does. But let's face it. God could have fixed all that for us. Whatever he gave your neighbor, he could have given you too. That's why you may feel inside that God owes you. Now, these might not be the words you would say, But as I hear and I listen to people talk, and they talk about the difficulties in their life or the trials that they have to go through, the undertone of what I hear is, I deserve for God to give me a better life than I've been given. I deserve to not have to go through this trial. Look at my life. Look at how good I am. I'm so much better than this person over here. I don't do X, Y, and Z. I deserve better. What is that? God owed me a life that I think somebody else has. God could have fixed this. God could have... He could have, but he didn't. And so it sets us up in this position where we believe God is spiritually indebted to us. That is really the heart of jealousy. That what God gave them, he should have given us. Here's the other thing about a jealous heart. A jealous heart can't celebrate, let's go and throw this up there. A jealous heart can't celebrate what others have gained, only what they they themselves seem to lack. You know that coworker? who got the promotion you were really working on, hoping for, and they walk by your desk with that like smirk on their face, and you're just like, yay, so happy for you. I got you a coffee mug with stale candy in it, right? Like, like <laughs> you, you look at your sister, your brother, they, they got the new truck, they got the new whatever, they got what, I don't, fill in the blanks. It is so hard with a heart full of jealousy to genuinely be excited when others succeed. All we can see is that I didn't get it. It wasn't me. Wait, your your friendships? It's a big one. Here's what happens as he allows this really entitled and ungrateful spirit to just take root in his life. It goes from bad to worse in his relationships. Let's keep reading here. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in the house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I will pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he departed from Saul. not that interesting? But if your boss, tomorrow morning... your wife, threw a spear at your head and tried to pin you to the wall. Are you showing back up to work on Tuesday? No. Hard no. You're calling HR, you're calling the cops, and you're finding new employment tomorrow, all right? But not David. There's something deep in David's character that we're going to talk about tomorrow that sends him back there twice, knowing full well Saul was trying to kill him. But do you see what's taking place here? David moved from the boy who would bring him comfort through playing music, the boy who brought him deliverance in front of the Philistines, the boy who led his armies to great victories, has now become someone he is bent on killing. How did he get there? Well, because he allowed jealousy to go unchecked in his heart. See, here's the other thing I want you to see about jealousy this morning. Jealousy turns allies into enemies. As you consider David's life at this point, everything he did was to make Saul win. Everything he did was to make Saul successful and to make Saul look good. But because of the filter of jealousy on his heart, he saw everything as an imposition on his power and his prosperity. He saw everything as a threat from David where there really was no threat. And that's exactly what jealousy will begin to do in our relationships if we allow it. We'll begin to see our coworkers, not as people who might desperately need Jesus, we see them as a threat to the, pro- the, the promotion that we want. You, you look at your, your siblings and you think about the affection that they're getting from mom or dad and, and what should be uh, uh, somebody who's a partner with you in life, uh, a best friend, is now competition for affection. And we, we do this with our grandkids, too, or with our kids, right? Because so-and-so's kids are getting more affection from grandma and grandpa than mine. My kids, and and there's just this jealousy that begins to come up. Maybe you see your friends hanging out with someone other than you. Oh my gosh, they can't have friends besides you? Why? Well, because what if they become better friends with them than with me? I'm going to be honest for us in this room today. What is that? We have taken people who God has given us to be our allies in life and we've turned them into enemies because there's a competition and a scoreboard that exists in our mind that does not exist anywhere else. Here's the problem, though. It undoes Saul. It isolates him. It ruins good friendships, which is exactly what it says in Proverbs chapter 14. A peaceful heart leads to a healthy body. Jealousy is like a cancer in the bones. It got into his heart, he was unwilling to deal with it, and it just began to erode any relationships he had. It just infiltrated his entire life. Now what happens, usually when that takes place, maybe you're different than me, but what happens is he says, fine, I can't watch David succeed up close, I'm tired of watching how awesome this guy is, get him out of here. So he ships him out off to war, which is what happens here in uh, chapter 18, verse 13. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns. And everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. (laughs) He said, get out of here. I'm tired of looking at how great you are. Go die in the battlefield, essentially is what he was saying. Well, God's favor was on him. He continues to excel, and Saul hates him even more. But the people love him even more. Why? Because he's doing what the king was supposed to be doing. David was leading out in war where Saul was failing to, which is really important is what we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks. But he steps into that space. Well, then Saul says, fine. Uh, you know that old saying, keep your enemies close, and your, or your friends close and your enemies closer? Well, he gets real personal here in, in verse 27. Then Saul gave him his daughter Michal in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and remained his enemy the rest of his days. What started as Saul being upset that there was a little bit of praise going David's way ultimately led him to to lose the affection of the people, the affection of his son Jonathan, where it said Jonathan gave him his tunic. What What that interchange was where Jonathan gave him his tunic and his belt was literally the son of Saul saying, I don't deserve to be the next king. You deserve to be the next king. And he followed him. So he lost his son Saul. Well, well, then he loses his daughter. What more could David take but the kingdom? And here's what I want you to see. The more jealous he became, the more he lost. The more he tried to grasp and pull and cling for the things of this world to give him value, to give him success, to give him significance... The more God just began to take and take and take and take. Until ultimately everything he was trying to identify in and keep was given to another man. Which is what Job says will happen in Job chapter 5. Surely resentment destroys the fool, and jealousy kills the simple. So jealousy kills the heart who is unwilling to see life in a clear picture. It muddies the water so that what really could be a great life is destroyed because you can't see things for what they really are. Saul, unwilling to see who David really was, destroyed himself. As we consider our life, the things that we're dealing with, the things that we're processing with, undealt with resentment, I don't care who it's towards, be it a family member, be it a leader, be it a friend, doesn't matter will destroy us it will erode our life so here's the question i have for you this morning who or what causes you to be jealous and and as you hear the word jealous i just i know it sounds so childish to be talking about it this morning i'm not jealous let's be honest this morning it's probably in there who is it is it is it somebody at work is it somebody at home Is it power? Is it position? Is it prosperity? Is it it privilege? We got to begin to identify this, and then here's what here's what we need to do next. Every time you come into a heart issue, the question you need to ask isn't "What do I do to fix this?" The question is, "What does Jesus do to solve the whole heart problem I'm incapable of fixing on my own?" Anything else is just uh, religious duty. The the call of Christianity is to take our broken mess that we're finally willing to be honest about, and come to the cross. Say, God, could you fix this for me? I'm incapable. Well, that's exactly what we're looking at here. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Philippians. Philippians chapter two, I want you to see how Jesus solves the jealousy problem for us. Philippians chapter two, verse three. says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. You just think about jealousy for a second. Is jealousy not selfish ambition and vain conceit? Is it not that I think I deserve to get some things out of life because I'm owed those things out of life or I think I'm better, I'm vain, I think I'm better than you, therefore I deserve that? He says, just just squash that whole idea. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. What, What if you and I this week were to in humility Value others above ourselves. If you looked at the person you're really jealous of, or the the situation you're really jealous of, and you took the heart position of the gospel, which is, they deserved it more than I did. Ugh, that's awful. Especially if you really don't like the person. To sit and say my mortal enemy is more valuable than me. This is terrible. It's the way of the gospel. But here's what you wouldn't struggle with. If that was our heart position, you wouldn't have jealousy. Why? Because they deserved good things in their life. I want to value them getting that above my own. Well, the only way that is possible is by looking at Jesus. Verse 5, and your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God, his position, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, his privilege. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, his position. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. He did not come to earth for praise, but ultimately was ridiculed, beaten, and mocked. Giving up the praise of heaven to come be beaten and murdered on earth. You see how Jesus, in those four sentences, undoes the things of jealousy? He gave up what we chase. He gave up the things we think we're entitled to. He gave up all of it. To set you and I free. Here's what strikes me as I read this. The only reason I would ever think I deserve that is because I failed to see what I really do deserve. As you consider Saul and, and, and Jesus side by side, what you see in Saul is somebody who used his power, his position, and, and the praise of men to fulfill something in him and to leverage for his own good. What you see in Jesus is him give up his position, give up his power, and ultimately not send a small boy on a suicidal mission to protect himself, but to send himself on a suicidal mission to Jerusalem to be killed, not to beat Goliath, but to defeat sin. You see, I don't deserve King Jesus. I deserve King Saul. I don't deserve what Jesus did on the cross for me. Listen, why? Because I know my life. (laughs) I know my heart. I know my motivations. I know the sin inside of me. And Romans tells me explicitly that my actions deserved death. What I deserved was death. Instead, I got a king who came and paid my penalty, my price, to set me free. I was spiritually impoverished, and Jesus paid the bill. And he didn't have to. Now, if that's true if I'm willing to understand and see the gospel not as something I deserved, but as something I had been given despite my life, do you know how quickly jealousy just fades to the background? <laughs> well, I should have gotten that promotion for a company that's not going to exist in 40 years. Well, I deserve that because you got the affection of God. Do you really need that? Well, I, well, I deserved nothing. And yet I was given great, abundant, abundant, merciful life. That's the gospel. And that's how it sets us free from jealousy. Not by trying hard, but sitting in the position of gratitude. And beyond that, what you see is Jesus give up position, power, praise, and prosperity for you to win in life. See, the gospel demands, not only do we celebrate when others win, the gospel demands we help others people win. The gospel demands, Jesus demands that when you and I look out on the world around us, those that are our enemies, we would pray that they would succeed in life. What? Because while we were still enemies of God, Jesus died for us. And so all of a sudden, the things we clamor for just kind of fade. The things we want significance out of just kind of fade. Why? Because I have been given the most valuable thing and nobody can take it from me. I don't have to be blind to what I already have because Jesus has revealed it to me. Nobody has to be my enemy because I've already won and Jesus went and died for his enemies. The very least I can do is help them win. Here's my challenge for you this week. I have a couple. As you consider somebody that Maybe he is a nemesis or somebody that you're really jealous of. Here's what I want you to do. Every time they come to your mind, I want you to pray that God would bless them. And I don't mean like, God bless them, amen. (laughs) Because the pastor told me so. (laughs) Pray that God would reveal himself to them in a way of intimacy and nearness that they have never known. Pray that God's abundant life would be shown in them. Pray that the Spirit of God would show up and guide and direct them, not just so they would repent to you, but they would repent to God. Pray that God's favor would fall on them. Do you know how hard it would be to be jealous of somebody that you're praying that kind of success for? Which is why Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Bless them. Why? Because he's undoing something in your heart that could ultimately destroy you if you don't deal with it. Here's the next challenge I have for you. We're going to give you some thank you cards on the way out. We're coming up on Thanksgiving. The way out of jealousy is a heart of gratitude for what God has given you. So we want to give you an opportunity to write some thank you cards to some people. Maybe there's, maybe it's the person you're really jealous of. Probably don't write that in the top of the card. Um, probably wouldn't be advised. Who do you need to show some gratitude to to begin to release some of that jealousy and resentment? And then I mean, we got to help our kids do this. We have to help our kids and grandkids do this. And so last week we gave you um, some, some things to put in a jar for a thank you jar for your kids. If you are an adult and you want to do one, that's awesome. Basically, you just write down things you're thankful for and then you take them out of Thanksgiving and you read them because we have to help our kids not erode their relationships because of jealousy. Here's the final thing I would say to you uh, on this this morning. What would your life look like if you were never, ever, ever in a competition with anybody ever again? if you had zero enemies for the rest of your life, if people really couldn't get under your skin because, man, if they beat you, they beat you. If they got it and you didn't, hey, that's okay, I won. I won with Jesus. Hey, and you can too. Listen, we would be the most annoying people ever. People would be so irritated by us. But you know what they would see? They would see lives committed to something beyond this world. Lives committed to the silly trinkets our heart are so willing and ready to chase. Lives committed to not get the praise of men, but to be satisfied in the praise of our Father. Let's pray. Father, we love you. It is in a position of great humility, that i just recognize i never deserved you